Now, every few months at Van City Church, if you're new, we kind of zero in on a specific practice or like a lifestyle rhythm that we find in Jesus of Nazareth, the way that he prayed, for example, or the way that he fasted, the way that he kind of deliberately escaped the crowds and the chaos of life to have silence and solitude with God. And we balance those practices with something that we call principles of emotional health and maturity, things like learning who we are and how we're wired, the way our personality works, dealing with our past, our upbringing, things like that. And the reason that we do both spiritual disciplines and principles of emotional health is because we are apprentices of Jesus. At Van City, you'll hear us talk about that quite a bit. We are being taught by Jesus, learning his way of life, imitating his lifestyle, learning to continue his work in the world today. And to master the practices of Jesus, as any apprentice goal would be of their master, we need emotional health. We need spiritual maturity. We need to figure out who we are and the way that we work and take our stuff head on, so to speak. Now, earlier this summer, we began a new practice titled, quite simply, uh, Eating and Drinking. We've been talking about hospitality. We've been talking about getting to know your neighbors. We've been talking about changing the way that we look at food so that we can use food for justice rather than injustice. And all of that had to do kind of with stepping outside, so to speak, to your neighbors, to those who don't follow Jesus already, to the poor, to the hungry. If you weren't here, please go back and catch up on the podcast. Tonight, we're actually going to return to the practice for a bit for something of a phase two. And this one's all about the ancient art of eating together as a family. And you guys uh, are here, so I assume that you're ready to get back to work. You all right? Feeling okay? Great. Don't worry, we'll be efficient, and then we'll have cold smoothies and popsicles and stuff, I'm told. So let's read from John's biography of Jesus, chapter 13, beginning with the very first verse. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. All that to say, Jesus knew that this was the big moment. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Skip down to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place at the table. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, there's obviously so much in this story. It's one of the most beautiful stories in the life of Jesus. But don't miss this. One dimension of what is taking place in this story is actually hospitality. These men spend all day on their feet outside in the ancient Near East. Jesus has them around a table. There's food, there's dinner. Jesus is acting as the host. And he treats them with a kindness that is as extraordinary as it is humble. And he tells them, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
And the early disciples of Jesus took this instruction very seriously. Turn over just a few pages to the right in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, to be exact. Let's read Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. This is a story about the early movement of disciples of Jesus. Acts 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, hanging out, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe as the, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, in the ancient world and in the ancient Greek language, there are no italics or kind of, you know, unique typefaces for in emphasizing points in a given text. So if you want to drive a certain point home, you repeat it. There are a number of remarkable ways these early apprentices of Jesus are carrying out this new way of life. It all sounds over-the-top incredible, this new society that they're living into together. But notice one particular practice that shows up repeatedly in this text. It says, and I quote, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It says again, they broke bread in their homes. It says again, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The same idea put three different ways. They ate together. They shared life around the table, so to speak. Later, one master apprentice of Jesus, who's called Paul, would bring this idea up again and again and again. Here's just a few examples. Here's one from Romans. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, Paul says, my co-workers in King Jesus. Greet also the church that meets at their house. In Colossians, he writes, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. In Philemon, Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Messiah Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia and sister Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets where? In your home. So from Jesus of Nazareth, through the humble beginnings of this movement that he started to the writings of Paul and the proliferation of the church throughout the Roman Empire, apprentices of Jesus have always gathered in people's homes and specifically to eat and drink together. This is, believe it or not, the very means by which Christianity transitioned from a small persecuted minority to a global movement by people meeting in homes and sharing meals together. And that radical development was accomplished relatively quickly. Uh, it just took a few decades for it to happen. Of course, over the ensuing centuries, things shifted a bit. One way of understanding the way that things have changed is by kind of tracing the evolution of the church through church architecture, believe it or not. So as we've seen already, it all begins in a home. And this has actually carried on for several hundred years, give or take. Jesus' followers constructed no buildings in which to meet. They didn't say, let's build some other place in which we might get together. And really, why would they? More often than not, they were running from the threat of persecution, imprisonment, and death. I mean, in Acts, it says they, they had favor, but that didn't last very long, if you know the story. So they gathered up, often secretly, in one another's homes. And the centerpiece of the gathering was actually the dinner table. 
But of course, things changed. The movement of Jesus continued to grow. Paganism in the ancient Near East actually began to decline. So these tiny gatherings became sizable ones more and more as time went on. They moved out of the homes and into these buildings called basilicas, which were octagon-shaped, bigger buildings, essentially. And yet, the table was still the centerpiece of the church gathering. Everything changed, however, in the 4th century when an emperor called Constantine legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire for the first time, and now this once meager persecuted movement spread like wildfire all across the known world. Now the church was building things for the first time, erecting cathedrals, the altar, the Latin mass. They replaced the dinner table as the centerpiece of the church gathering. The once shared meal, which was a full-on meal, devolved into a sip of wine and a bite of bread, which is something that we'll discuss further a bit later in the series. Then came the Protestant Reformation, if you know anything about church history, in the 16th century. And as like the traditionalism of Roman Catholicism was being shed for what was then a new focus on Bible teaching, the pulpit, essentially, this is kind of like one, but the pulpit replaced the altar as the central focus of the church. Now the mass was out and the sermon was in. Churches went from cathedrals to like homely wooden rectangles, basically. In the eastern United States and in the south where I grew up, these churches are still easy to find on every single block. I went to one for many years. And these boxes housed the sermon, essentially, in a Sunday community event that was held for upright local citizens to attend, be a part of the community, go to church. It's what you do. Now, the most recent shift began around the turn of the last century with the radical evolution of radio and television and technology and entertainment. Music began to be emphasized in a way that was new to church gatherings. The old box churches um, made way for churches that were designed more like theaters, actually like this building is, which is was still pretty old, with, you know, some of them had enormous pipe organs and choir lofts and the pastor kind of acted as the lead performer in Sunday's big event. And these details, you know, like the idea of like a pipe organ and a choir sound antiquated to some of us, but this is really the dominant approach to a lot of churches still today, including this building, you know, or, or even up to the suburban megachurch in a park office and the many offspring of that genre of church. There's the stage, there's the band, and then there's seating to face the performance. And now we're actually edging toward the precipice of a new era in the center or in the history of the church in which the center of gravity is no longer a building at all, but like the binary code of cyberspace, you know, the, the table, the altar, the mass, the sermon, the stage, all of that is being replaced by the website, the podcast, the Instagram feed, which sounds ridiculous, but there are actually individuals today who claim to belong to a church in a city to which they've never even traveled at all. Now, all that to say, if you spent any time in a church, there may be some aspects of the form you assume to be kind of historically normative, meaning you assume there probably was always a speaker, a stage, whatever, but in reality there are actually relatively new developments in church history. It doesn't make them bad. Actually, some of them, I think, are just fine, and we use a bunch of them, obviously. On the other hand, there may be some things that you think of as modern or even trendy, but that have actually marked the church uh, as early as the first century, things like small group meetings, um, weekly, you know, home groups, reading the scriptures together, singing songs together, meeting in homes, all of that has always been a part of the church. And that last one, meeting in homes, is an important one because for centuries, the earliest disciples of Jesus believed the centerpiece of church itself was a home and a table. 
And the reason is actually wonderfully straightforward, because the church is, they believed, a family. In fact, uh, the word Christian cameos a paltry three times in the entire New Testament. It's not the term that Jesus uses. It's not the term that his disciples use to describe one another. Instead, they use two words. The first is mathetes in Greek, which can be translated as disciple or apprentice, which is the word we use all the time. And you get that word, mathetes, 268 times in the New Testament compared to the three times that you get the word Christian. The other word is Adelphoi. Some of your Bibles translate that word as brothers and sisters. And Adelphoi shows up 342 times. Jesus called his followers Methetes and Adelphoi, meaning he referred to the people who followed him as apprentices and brothers and sisters. So it really comes as little surprise that these followers of Jesus behaved as though they had been invited to become a family together. And when they gathered in homes, they actually shared a meal. They sat down at a table and ate. And it wasn't like a meal to supplement or complement the main thing. The meal was the main thing. In fact, in one of the letters to a church in a city called Corinth, Paul writes this, My brothers and sisters, when you gather to do what? To eat. You should all eat together. Uh, Apparently they were bad at that. And again, food wasn't the only thing done in the church. Even in the beginning, there were things like hymns, worship songs for us, prayer, reading from the scriptures, making space for the Holy Spirit to speak and to move. But disciples of Jesus, they shared food. They shared finances and resources and wisdom. They carried one another's burdens. They learned and grew together as a family. They served and sacrificed for one another. And it was all built around a recurring dinner gathering. Today, the church is largely imagined more like a a service provided for consumers. That's one of the reasons, it feels like, you know, word mincing, but one of the reasons that we call what we do on Sunday a gathering rather than a service is because this is not a service that's being provided for a community. It's not a free concert on Sunday. It's not just cold brew coffee. All those things are great, Um, but this is a gathering together over and against the way church is often thought of in the modern world, which is the service provided for consumers. So the idea is like, Find the one with the band you like that plays in the genre and the style that you like. Find a teacher who's funny and entertaining and not boring. Find affinity groups. You know, if you're single, you need a single group. If you're married, you need a married group. Find a mom group. Find a book club. Get the one with good coffee. Get the one with comfortable seats and air conditioning, for God's sakes. Um, Get the one that has the best kids program and the best playground and awesome video content and blueberry muffins. Um, And then leave a Yelp review, you know, let other people know what they can expect. So subscribe to the podcast, like the Instagram post. Now, not all of that is inherently evil, despite my sarcasm, though I do think Yelp reviews of churches, frankly, are satanic, I think, personally. Some of that is just fine. I mean, who doesn't like blueberry muffins and who doesn't prefer air conditioning? I mean, really, this is not just for spiritual formation. Um, It's because we don't have it. But my point is that we can actually trace a discernible shift here. A religious service provided for the modern consumer was actually once a meal together as a family. And what I'm getting at is a point that should come as no surprise to anyone who's been with us for more than one or two Sundays. Central to life as a disciple of Jesus is life as a family and that around a table. It isn't a novel concept. We didn't make it up, really. But believe it or not, the ordinary reality of life around a table as a family has been tragically diminished, if not largely displaced, 
over the last 2,000 years. One reason, I think, for that oversight is that this way of life isn't always an organic, natural thing that simply unfolds of its own volition. This is an ancient spiritual discipline. It is a practice. And really, the cost of losing this practice is well represented in culture at large. All sorts of studies have been conducted in recent memory, tracking the differences between, for example, families that regularly eat together and families that don't. Um, one recent article I read in The Atlantic titled The Importance of Eating Together summarizes a ton of that really sobering data. Uh, in research gathered around the world over a significant stretch of time, researchers learned that students who do not regularly eat with their parents are about twice as likely to fail in school. Children who do not eat dinner with their parents at least twice a week were almost 40% more likely to be overweight or obese compared to those who do. Um, adolescents and families that do not eat together regularly are more at risk for teen pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse, depression, anxiety. And on the other hand, children and families who eat together consistently are less at risk for all of the above. More likely to eat healthier, more likely to su succeed in school, they have better relationships with their parents and on down the list. And the author of this article uh, articulates his thesis wonderfully when he writes this, to eat is a necessity, but to eat intelligently is an art, said the 17th century writer Francois de la something or another. What intelligence means in the context of eating is debatable. Perhaps to eat intelligently, one needs only to eat together. Although it would be nice to eat healthily as well, even takeout makes for a decent enough meal, psychologically speaking, so long as your family, roommates, or friends are present. And this is authored by someone who isn't, doesn't have an agenda for Jesus whatsoever. Now, in that same article, the author tracks new trends that forcibly usher life around the table into the shadows to be forgotten. For, for instance, statistically, about half of all marriages end in divorce which is a bummer. The family itself is being redefined more and more every day around a rapidly evolving paradigm of sexuality and gender. Many families can't afford to live on one income, so it results in wildly disparate schedules and presences, presences at home, which is nothing anyone can help. And apparently, the article says the average American spends more on fast food than they do on groceries. The average American eats one out of five meals in a car, Apparently, get this, only 17% of American families actually sit down for a meal together at all. Half of those families only do it while they watch TV. And don't get me wrong, that's not always evil. Uh, my family always ate dinner together, um, one of the things that, we, that I'm thankful for. Um, but on Monday, we had to watch Fresh Prince while we ate dinner. That was just the thing. It was like if, if those two things overlap, then that's the family activity for the night. Otherwise, the TV has to be off, but special allowance for Fresh Prince. Now, <laughs> um, so half of the families that actually do eat together out of that meager 17% of Americans only do it while they watch TV, and God knows how many of them only do it while they're on their phones the entire time or when they have like an iPad to babysit their kids. And even when they do eat together, one study found that the average family meal time was 12 minutes. 12 minutes. Man, it, it honestly takes me longer to like finish a cup of coffee. I drink it really slow, but still. Um, 60 years ago, studies say that the uh, American family average 
was to spend an hour and a half together around a table. Now it's 12 minutes in 60 years. What the crazy? That's nuts. In light of all this, it hardly comes as any surprise that hospitality, meaning a willingness to eat with neighbors, to open up your home to people that you don't know, has declined by 45% in the last three decades. No wonder that we're facing, as uh, Cam actually mentioned several weeks ago, what some sociologists are called an epidemic of loneliness. And of course, I'd love to stand up here and brag about the way the church is getting it right, the rest of the world's doing it so wrong, but we're embodying what the world around us is missing. But I think you and I both know that that would be a sham. We're often no better. There, are often, there is often evidence of wonderful breakthrough in the church, but we get it wrong too. We're right in the thick of the trouble. But listen to this. The idea is that we are learning to practice the way of Jesus together. We're all over the map in our stories, our respective journeys with Jesus, our wounding, our wiring and dispositions. Some of us grew up in homes that ate together. That's beautiful. Some of us didn't. Some of us eat together now as families, and some of us don't. But we're here to figure all that out. We're working on it. We're walking together, elbow in elbow, arm in arm, to practice the way of Jesus. This, the church, should be a place where we're working out what it means to be a family. We don't show up knowing with expertise. That's why we're here. We're working out what it means to be in God's family, let alone in a family at all, what it means to be saved what it means to actually love one another as a family. And make no mistake, at the, end of day, at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. As cliche as it sounds, it is about love. Everything in the way of Jesus and uh, in Jesus' way of life, his teaching, in the scriptures, Jesus himself would argue, can be traced back to that core principle, chief motivation, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Even the word hospitality in the New Testament is this Greek word from the root word phileo, which is one Greek word for, you guessed it, love. Thing is, love itself is a practice, right? It's something that at times, sure, it comes involuntarily, but in much of our waking lives, it has to become a conscious decision, man. My wife, Abby, has this way of saying, uh, kind of softening the blow when she's not into something. Like if it's date night and I want to go, I'm like, hey, why don't we go to this restaurant or something like that? She'll say, oh, I don't love that place. And that means, I guess that's it. You know, like, dang, okay, we, all our plans have to be generated by love. Um, but really, um, that was just a joke. She's terribly accommodating and all that. But the, the point is, that's the way we often think of love. It's like you either love something or you don't. We love coffee or we love, you know, the weather or don't love that. I don't love the weather right now, which is true. You know, or we love interior decoration. I love this house, whatever it might be. The other evening, I kid you not, Abby and I, Abby and I were sitting at a table eating, and then we're like, it was kind of quiet for a second, and I looked up. I was lost in my own thoughts. I have ADD, all that. And I said, man, I love Godzilla. That's out of nowhere. This, is, this lucky woman enjoys a window into my mind. It's incredible for her, I'm sure. And it's fine to love coffee, it's fine to love Godzilla, you know, to feel love, like, oh man, I feel like I love this thing, or to love a restaurant, all that's fine. But in the New Testament, love is actually an effort. It's something that you take up with practice. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosario Butterfield wrote this, 
God calls Christians to practice hospitality in order to build loving Christian communities, to build nightly table fellowship with fellow image bearers, to ease the pain of orphanhood, widowhood, and prison. This gospel call that renders strangers into neighbors, into family of God, is all pretty straight up if you read the Bible, especially the book of Acts, and it requires both hosts and guests not just one or the other, as giving and receiving our good and sacred and connect people and communities in important ways. I doubt many would argue that this way of loving hospitality is actually easy. Um, heck, I, I don't eat fast food personally, personally, and I'm absolutely convinced that fast food would be easier than groceries and cooking um, by name alone. <laughs> I bet that iPads at the dinner table are easier than conversation with small kids, especially when you're exhausted. It's the end of the day. Totally. Um, at my house, we've been working on teaching our, our son, Beck, who's four, how to pray and thank God before we eat food. But now, you know, Isla, she's two. She's been seeing this for a while now. She's decided she wants to pray as well, so they both need a turn, which is, let's be honest, you know, Isla's prayer is mostly Jeebus. And then it's followed by some gibberish. And at the end, we know it's over because she goes, I'm mine. And that's it. Um, meanwhile, Beck is starting to pray simultaneously. You know, he's like charismatic. So he's doing his prayer at the same time. And it's like you'll just hear him beside you being like, and thank you for Spinosaurus. And please let it be time for me to watch Jurassic Park. Um, and then while we eat, prayer's over. We go around the table and we actually do that silly thing where I'm like, hey, Beck, tell me something you loved about your day and something you didn't like about your day. Um, and we all do that with the kids. The information you get may or may not be from the day or from reality <laughs> at all. Um, and then a few minutes after you get through that, like Isla's climbing up on top of the table. She loves that. And then Beck is telling her, no, Isla, get off the table. And then he's suddenly announcing, pushing the plate away. I no longer like refried beans. Okay, that's the end of that. It's like chaos. Chaos reigns at dinner table. at the dinner table. It's messy. It's wild. And I love it. You know, when I get home... We all hang out. We all make time to spend together. We play with toys. We go outside, all that stuff. They're running around in the sprinkler while I hiss in a shadow with a black umbrella over my head. Um, but the dinner table is like a sacred conference room. It's like where our family reconvenes and reconnects in a way that is unique in all the world. And even with crazy kids and prayers about dinosaurs, it's, that is easy <laughs> compared to life together as a family with other disciples of Jesus, with neighbors. Because in the church, the idea is that we're a family, even if we're not always friends in the traditional sense. It's something we say in every round of our basics class. We have to stress that over and over again, meaning you may or may not form close personal affinity friendships with the people in your community, and that's fine. You may not go on vacation together or love all the same things or want to go to the same movies together and hang out all the time in your free time. That's okay, but you can sure as heck learn to be a family. But in order to do that, you have to practice. It is a spiritual discipline. And interestingly enough, the authors of the New Testament show a special concern for the church learning to do this as a family first. I think of Paul who writes this in Galatians. Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, absolutely, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And I know for certain, really, from experience, that there are lonely people represented in this room this very evening. 
They may not look and sound just like you. They may not like what you like. Maybe they aren't like a candidate for your very best friend. But there are lonely people amongst us in need of hospitality and in need of a family. And the church is the answer to both of those questions. And that isn't easy. It isn't convenient. But it is the work of every disciple of Jesus to do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We want to be shaped into people who, like Jesus, actually care about other people, who practice hospitality, practice hospitality, who meet and eat with friends and with family and with the convenient and the inconvenient, especially those who belong to the family of believers. We want to be people who open up our lives, our homes, our dinner tables to other people in order to love them well. That's actually one of the primary vehicles that we get that done. So this week, all that to say before we end, this week, You'll get together with your community or with a group of friends if you're not yet in a community or if you're listening to this podcast, you know, futuristic technology. Go to practicingtheway.org for a practice that is remarkably straightforward. First, eat with other disciples of Jesus. If you're in a community already, easy. Just show up for community. That's it. But don't just eat. Don't just be next to one another. Actually slow down to savor the company and the presence of God while you eat together. Imagine your home and your table as a place for family. Be deliberate about seeing and hearing one another. Talk about how you can do that well as a family. Even if your community is, like mine, just ruled by insane children. They've begun to outnumber us. It's the whole thing every time. It's like, oh man, oh my gosh, tell me more about that. They're crying, and then something, glass shatters. (laughs) One, this is a side story that's not in this. Let me tell you. You want to hear it? even though it's, it'll be, you'll be all right. Um, one week, uh, all of the kids in our community were downstairs in one of our houses, all of them, which is never a great idea, but we were just living it up. We were out there like sipping our cold water and eating and be like, this is the best, no kids. Are they okay? Who cares? We hadn't heard anything. You know, the music was playing, everybody was jamming. And then we heard, I kid you not, glass shatter, shrieking, and someone saying, blood, blood, blood. So we're like, I guess that's it. And we go downstairs, and all three of those things were there. Shrieking, glass was broken. Someone had gotten into a spray bottle of, like, chlorine or, like, cleaner or something, sprayed it all over a television, then pushed over a glass thing that shattered, and there was blood on the ground. <laughs> they were all fine. And then next week, they were down there again. It was fine. No, I'm just kidding. We, we roped them in after that. Anyway, what was I saying? I have ADD. Okay, so it was like uh, our community is ruled by screaming children, and we just have to find a way to be like, man, how are you? What's going on with you? I care about you and who you are. Don't have to get so somber and like overly serious about it. Just be deliberate about caring about one another, not just sitting together and making small talk. Um, and I realized for some of you guys, this is business as usual. You're thinking, what the heck? We do that all the time already, and that's awesome. Please keep up with it. Um, But for others of you, maybe you'll realize that, yeah, you eat together all the time, you have fun, but you're not actually eating together like a family. So the question for you, dynamic number two of the practice is, how can you be creative in reimagining your time together as a family time? Don't suck the fun out of it, just make space to be a family. You don't have to play games or do icebreakers if that's not your thing. Um, You don't have to impose an exercise on everyone per se. If that helps, knock yourself out. Maybe you'll just simply look someone in the eye and ask them a real question about their week and their life, and that should be enough. Uh, my good friend admitted once to me that they, they have this totally understandable qualm with community 
which is that it feels weird that like Tuesday at 6 o'clock, now is my time to be vulnerable with community. It's scheduled and it's implemented on the calendar. And they said, you know, just kind of sometimes it feels like a put-on. And I sympathized. In fact, I, I confessed it is a put-on because we know from experience, actually we know from the scriptures, we know from sociology and science, that this doesn't just happen by itself. You have to work at it, especially the older you get and the more advanced you get in your life together in family time, seasonal life, whatever it might be. You have to carve out time. You have to be thoughtful and deliberate and practice. Author Jean Vanier wrote this, in the years to come, we are going to need many small communities which will welcome lost and lonely people, offering them a new form of family and a sense of belonging. In the past, Christians who wanted to follow Jesus opened hospitals and schools. Now there are so many of these. Christians must commit themselves to the new communities of welcome, to live with people who have no other family, and to show them that they are loved and can grow to greater freedom, and that they in turn can love and give life to others. And this is not some kind of hip new book I stumbled upon this week. That was written four decades ago. I've been doing the community thing now for seven years, um, and the community's evolved over time across two churches, and this church plant was part of that story. But from the outset, really, when we started to hone in what we were doing and how we were going to do it, and if we were going to, you know, plant this church and everything, we sat down and we established the expectation for going forward. Like, what's going to be the ask of everyone in this community? And we didn't say that everyone will pray all the time or that we'll all read our Bibles every day. Or we didn't say to one another, like, you're going to be the best Christian. We actually said the expectation is that we will show up. In fact, we actually articulated the expectation like this. The rule is, unless you are sick, you can't get out of work, or you have a family emergency, you will always be at community and at church, no exceptions. That's the expectation. And of course, we do grant, you know, the rare allowance to someone who's on vacation or something like that. But things like, oh man, I'm just tired tonight. Nope. Or man, I just really want to catch up on this project, or I'm beat, or it's been a long day. We say, no, that's not what we agreed to. And we do our best to stick to it. And guess what? Our community is so much stronger because of it. I don't think that it's this miserable law that hangs over the group. I think it actually frees us up to know where we stand and to hold one another accountable to that standard. And I'm not saying at all that that's what you guys have to do. You find what works for your community, absolutely. But for us, there are reasons that we went hardcore. There are reasons that I said, here's what I think we should do, and everyone was like, yeah, let's do it. One is because I've been doing this long enough to know that flakiness is easily the number one disruptor of a community. Right now, if you were to ask Cam about the number one problem facing our communities or in the churches that he talks to, really, he'd tell you that people do not faithfully show up to church or to their community or to either. And those in the community who are faithful, who are showing up and giving it their best shot, they're being affected by the ones who don't show up faithfully. I see it all the time. But the other reason, honestly, is because because we can't learn this stuff if we don't show up. Community isn't something that yields immediate results. It doesn't work that way. It isn't something that always renders tangible, quantitative results either. I learned a while back when I was reading that there's this, an expression that they use at the end of AA meetings, which is, keep coming back, it works. And I thought, man, that's really interesting. Why say that? 
And the obvious inference is, is because it's often hard and it often feels like it's not working and you don't want to show up again, but it does work. And every road of true transformation is hard. We should all know that. We should all think about that, remember that, dwell on that. Every meaningful road of transformation is hard. Um, the Austrian oak, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the world, yes, yeah, who did the woo? Yeah, oh, <laughs> great, thank you for that. Um, greatest bodybuilder of all time, famously used the expression, no pain, no gain, constantly. And it's a, an tired expression, I know. But Arnold is right, man. I was thinking about this week. Arnold is right. Sometimes community may feel like pulling teeth. Maybe it feels like it isn't doing anything, you know, it's not working or whatever. And maybe sometimes there are issues and those issues need to be addressed and something isn't lining up right. That's totally fine. That's to be accepted. But the solution to that isn't to bail. It isn't to find some other thing to do or to say, never mind, I'll find a different group of people, whatever. It isn't to give up on the greatest foundational centerpiece of the Christian lifestyle. The idea is instead, much like they articulate in AA, keep coming back, it works. You will frustrate one another. Um, ask my community. I'm sure they're frustrated by me on a near weekly basis. You annoy one another. You wound one another. You have to apologize. It's embarrassing. And somehow, when you don't give up and when you actually show up, in both the physical, mental, and emotional sense, you will shape one another to be more like Jesus. Not if you're a super disciple, not if you're wise and way down the path, just if you're you giving it your best shot, trying to practice the way of Jesus with all the flapping and failure and missteps and correction, you will inevitably shape one another to be more like Jesus. That is how it is done, together, never apart. So, my encouragement to many of you is simple. Don't give up. Keep coming back. It works. To others, the encouragement is join us. It's not easier. I'll let you in on that from the outset. It's not easier, but it is better. We're not perfect, but we are stumbling along the road of discipleship together. Just like Tab said before the gathering, if we're going to sweat, we're going to sweat together. There's a reason that the New Testament most often refers to us as brothers and sisters. There is a reason that Jesus famously said, whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brother, my sister. And that's not just fanciful language. It is a reality into which disciples of Jesus are invited. We can be a family. Come have a seat at the table with the family. With all its messiness and complication and pain and beauty, come have a seat at the table. Let's pray together as we learn to eat and drink as a family in the days to come.